The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Now I'm delighted that we're joined for today's Culture Club by recently awarded the Freedom of Dublin, one of only seven women to have received that honour. And indeed, it was three women who received it in recent times. Uh, Kelly Harrington, Mary Aiken, and today's guest, Alba Smith, who has been on the programme many times in the past, particularly her involvement in the marriage equality campaign and also in the most recent Repeal the Eighth Amendment campaign as well, and going back over very many years involved in the setting up the Department of Women's Studies in UCD and editor at Attic Press in the 1980s, and much else besides. Alva, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. So, as a free woman of Dublin. Does that mean you've joined the establishment or has the establishment <laughs> come to you? Well, you know, that's such a great question because I said to myself, hmm, I think this is integration into uh, the establishment. It means somehow that you've arrived somewhere. And I thought, well, yeah, but that's not really going to work very well with me. So I did notice when I was giving my speech that night in the Mansion House that I was quite careful to put in all the radical bits and what we would be doing next and so on and so forth. But I mean, I do think it's a wonderful accolade for activism and campaigning and a kind of recognition of the difference that it makes to a society to have that active campaigning activist force, because I think that's indicative of the health of a society as a whole. do you still have ambitions? Because have you not won all your battles? Such <laughs> You won the divorce battle in the middle of the 1990s eventually. You won the marriage equality referendum. You won repeal the 8th back in 2018. Have you not achieved everything that you set out to do? Now, Matt, you know very well that, you know, there is never an end to it. That First of all, you have to safeguard what you what you gain. And I think that's really important in the world today. And just thinking about repeal the eighth and abortion, I mean, that's very crystal clear in the world as a whole. But there are also new issues coming on board. Uh, we're still dealing with endemic poverty in so many ways. You know, it, I think if if, if you're... If your mindset, if your temperament, if your character is oriented towards activism, that you don't see a gain as an end, you see it as a step on the way and that you try and, and hold on to to that step. Because, I mean, for example, repeat the Eighth Amendment doesn't mean that every woman can um, access abortion services in this country. She can't, you know, and we have to work for that. We absolutely have to work for it. So there's always something. I also feel now that I'm entitled as an older woman to say I want to speak out with and alongside and on behalf of older people in this country because I actually think that we pay a lot of lip service to older people. Um, and in what way? Well, I think that we're sort of quite, on the whole, quite kind of semi-reverential. But it, when I think about what happened myself during the, the pandemic, when, you know, <laughs> we were told, look, you've got to stay inside. So what we're going to do is lock you in, throw away the key, and then we won't have to think about you uh, for as long as the pandemic rages and surges and so on and so forth. Um, and of course, that meant that so many older people who were in residential care and nursing homes and, and so on, I think we all know that from our parents and our grandparents and, and whatnot. I mean, that it was it was not a thoughtful, it was not really thinking about what happens to people when you lock them into 
a collective environment when there is when there is a pandemic. There was no thought really given to that, nor indeed to the very many older people who were locked into their own homes um, on their own. I mean, you know, people say, oh, well, that didn't happen to you, Abba. Actually, it kind of did. Did you feel isolated? I did, you know, I did really, Matt. Um, I remember ringing my GP one day and saying, it would have been about two or three weeks into the whole cocooning, what dreadful word, uh, business. And I said, look, you know, we're not allowed to go out. And my house is awfully small and the courtyard's very small. I mean, how am I to get any exercise? And she said, well, you could walk up and down outside. I said, oh, no, no. Um, they told us that we mustn't go outside. So anyway, I went, walked up and down outside twice a day, 20 minutes a day. And after about a month, I thought, I'll go down to the end of the road and see what's happening in the village down there. About a month. Before, I did that. You know, big, brazen, loud Well, I was just me. thinking, you, of all the people who would sort exactly. of like cock a snook at the establishment, exactly. there was you following well, the rules. I was following the rules as laid down by the scientists and the medics. And I didn't want to get, I didn't want to get this disease. It wouldn't have been good for me at all. I mean, I did in the end and it was okay. Thank goodness. But, you know, it's very easy to, it's kind of easy to tell older people, we want you to be seen, but we don't really want to hear from you. We don't want to have to think about you. We want to put you into homes which are not very homely. You know, it's too easy. I thought we were talking about culture today. We are there. Well, did you, well <laughs> I was just about to ask, did you use the opportunity to read lots, to listen to loads of music, to watch movies? Did you actually use that time, perhaps, if you were that bit isolated, productively. Yeah. Well, I'm not. I'm not so sure about that. I mean, maybe you know loads of people who are incredibly productive. I mean, I, I don't think I was. I mean, what happened quite quickly, of course, was that Zoom began to take off, so that there were these endless um, enc- <coughs> virtual encounters. I got very, very busy. But yes, of course, I mean, I did read a bit more and I watched every single Scandinois programme on Water Presents and on Netflix, which I'd never done in my life before. And and uh, did you enjoy it? Do you know, I, 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 I actually did. I kind of got into this state of mind where I got a bit annoyed if people phoned me. <laughs> <laughs> interrupting your television viewing. No, in, just interrupting in a way my my solitariness. I think inside most extroverts there is a very introverted person who likes to spend time on their own. And in some ways it it gave me, I think, time to I think it gave me time to think because, you know, the previous few years had really been absolutely clappers nonstop. Uh, from through marriage equality and um, and then through repeal the eighth, and I really hadn't taken time to draw breath, and I didn't set out to think about all of that, but I think it kind of happened during that. So I think in that sense it was productive. Yeah. Okay, let's go through your choices, and we ask every guest to try and remember the first piece of music. In your case, a single that you would have ever have bought. Can you remember what it is? Yes, yes, I can. Absolutely. It was Robot Man by Connie Francis and it came out sometime in the early 60s, I think. And it went something like, which will shock and horrify people who know me. I want a robot man. We actually have it. Oh, you we have, have it. We've actually have. got to play a clip from it. <laughs> 
Can you remember what attracted you to Robot Man by Connie Francis? Yes, it was a thought that I, I think I'm just listening to it again now. I think there was something there in that 14, 14-year-old 14 self that knew that I might someday have a sexuality that wasn't going to lend itself to, to love and marriage in the conventional way because there is a line about, uh, you know, to wind him up with the robot key. <laughs> So there was something there, but I do remember the afternoon spent dancing, practicing our dancing with my friends, my girlfriends um, in each other's houses. And it does bring back those really very happy memories of, of that part of my, uh, I was going to say childhood, but maybe younger. Teenage hood, years. Teenage years, yes. You've given us an eclectic choices in music because... This may be the first time in the Culture Club that we're going to play a bit of classical music and you've picked as your favourite album a particular interpretation of Bach. Tell us about this. Oh, well, this is Glenn Gould, who um, was a wonderful Canadian pianist who absolutely set the whole world of classical music on fire way back when, in I think probably the 1950s or something, when he um, made a recording of um, Bach's Goldberg variations, which were very, very obscure. People didn't really know about them. And um, apparently this recording, Glenn Gould's recording, just set the whole thing on fire. But the other thing was he really caught the imagination and he became a musical celebrity because he was very eccentric. He was very, very strange. He used to bathe his arms in hot water for 20 minutes before he recorded. He also so why? I don't, I've absolutely no idea. <laughs> he wore a, a muffler and a hat and um, even in very hot recording studios. He was an extraordinary, I mean, a truly extraordinary pianist. And he recorded, he made that first, his first recording of the, the Goldberg when he was 22. And the last one he finished just before his death when he was only 50. And I think that whole story about Len Gould caught my imagination, but also the absolutely wonderful, incredibly beautiful music. And I have to say that, you know, for all my shenanigans of one kind or another, maybe I am a kind of, you know, there is an inner person there who has always trusted Bach with this kind of sense of structure and order and precision and yet that in- intense humanity that has accompanied me really my life since since I was in my 20s or 30s, I think. Okay, so from the Goldberg Goldberg Variations, Glenn Gould, and this is Variation 4.
Okay, that's the first time Bach has been played, I'd imagine, on the last word in Today FM and on Today FM itself. Uh, Alba Smith is giving us her choices for the Culture Club, but you've also picked out another artist, Angelique Kido. Yes, well, she um, is a, a very extraordinary um, African um, singer-songwriter and uh, she's also an actor and she's also um, she's also an activist and she sings this, in, extra, she has an extraordinary voice and she sings this ex- extreme mix of sort of Afro-pop and Caribbean and, um, you know, um, American jazz and people like Aretha Franklin and she's just absolutely remarkable and she's also an incredible personality and a character and she has done an enormous amount for girls and young women um, uh, in Africa. I think she was from Bina originally herself. So she also sings, she sings in French, she sings in English, she's, she sings in African languages. She's she's very, very remarkable person. I love, I love her music. Okay, this is from an album that's 20 years old, Black Ivory Soul. Oh, yeah. uh, this is C'est Petit Réal. C'est à rien que de pas penser du tout Rien c'est déjà rien, c'est déjà beaucoup On ne se souvient de rien et puisqu'on oublie tout Rien c'est bien mieux, rien c'est bien mieux que tout Mieux vaut ne penser à rien que de penser à vous Ça ne me vaut rien, ça ne me vaut rien du tout Mais comme si de rien n'était, je pense à tout Ces petits rien qui me venaient de vous Si c'était trois fois rien, trois fois rien entre nous Évidemment, ça ne fait pas beaucoup Ces petits riens que j'ai mis bout à bout Ces petits riens qui me venaient de vous Okay, Angelique Kajou, probably also a first time from the last word on Today she, FM. I also should have said maybe I really love her because she sings in French and of course I aren't my crust um, in, you know, by by being in the Department of French and UCD for 40 years. So France, French, uh, Francophone, the Francophone world are kind of part of my DNA now at this stage of my my life. I can't, I can't imagine myself not being somehow involved with France, French and the Francophone universe. <laughs> One other bit of music we're going to get to be asked for the best concert or gig you were ever at and you've picked somebody who I think would perhaps be more familiar to many of our listeners, Patti Smith at the oh. Olympia in 1999. Why Patti Smith? Oh well, I mean I think Patti Smith is surely everybody loves and adores uh, Patti Smith. She just, she is an incredible artist. She She's also written her lovely memoir books. She has led an extraordinary yeah. life. Uh, she has a brilliant voice. She's an incredible per- person um that was a wonderful gig and it 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 was you know a bit kind of it didn't go very well in the first 
part where everybody was very quiet and very polite. And the wonderful friend I was with decided this wasn't good enough. So she started doing these, you know, those whistles you do, you put your thumbs or your fingers in your mouth and you do those really loud whistles. So she said, I can't do them, Matt. You know, you go, and I'm not going to try either. <laughs> like that. So she was doing these whistles and Patty loved it and kind of waved up to us where we were sitting and um, it, it kind of cheered everything up somehow. And I just thought I was carried away by her, absolutely carried away by her. I think she's Well, let's hear Let's hear her sing Persuasion. Oh, Lord. Smith from the Olympia in 1999 Alba Smith's selection as the best gig or concert she was at and we're going to move now Alba to movies and mm. I think you're a big movie goer so you found it hard to pick out any movies I'm that not, you, or over others. Not really incredibly big movie goer at all actually but when I do go to movies I love it <laughs> but I don't, I, don't, I don't go nearly often enough and I'm kind of making up my mind that I've got more time now and I'm, I'm going to do that um, but I did find it very hard p- partly because it's really hard to think back over the movies that have really shaped you in a way it, particularly if you're not a movie buff Okay. And I'm just not, you know. But you've picked out Frida from 2002, a movie with Salma Hayek. Yes, well, she's lovely, Salma Hayek. And this was a wonderful movie. Uh, I think, I'm not sure, I think it was made by by Julie Taymor. Not absolutely sure about that. But it's a lovely, it's a wonderful film, the story of the artist Frida Kahlo uh, in Mexico. And um, she, of course, is incredibly powerful, uh, remarkable woman, very, very striking, who had a whole uh, persona in terms of how she looked, how she presented herself to her world, but uh, to the world, but who also had 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 a very difficult and sad life through a terrible um, uh, injury, that accident that she'd had, and she was very in, in, she was very seriously injured. But she continued painting, and she continued painting, even though for a woman to be painting at that time, alongside her artist uh, husband, was you know. It, it was remarkable. It was incredibly difficult. Her husband, Diego Rivera, who's a very well-known Mexican artist, didn't quite appreciate that Carlo was the the powerhouse, the artistic powerhouse that she actually was, so gifted. And the interesting thing is that she has now become a really very celebrated woman artist, so to speak, and... Just, just when I was thinking of doing these questions, I happened to be in London um, last weekend. I went to visit my my grandchildren and my daughter. 
their family. And my, my granddaughter, who's nine, she knows about Frida Kahlo. She has these books with great women who changed the world. In fact, we, we went to a rock musical about that as well. But anyway, um, and she knows about Frida Kahlo. And she also has uh, books, uh, sort of these cut-out things. You cut out dolls, sort of figures. And she has one of those for Frida Kahlo. And she, she knew, she knows a lot about her. So... An artist who really, really, really has made an extraordinary mark. Well, on we young have a people. clip from the movie in which Frida I'm, played sorry, by. I should have said it's yeah. a great movie. <laughs> <laughs> Frida played by Salma Hayek asked her future husband Diego Rivera, played by Alfred Molina, for a critique of her work and his opinion on her future as an oh, artist. Right. There you go. <laughs> What? Look, I didn't come here for fun or to flirt. I've done some paintings which I want you to look over professionally, and I need an absolutely straightforward opinion of my work. You were that girl in the auditorium. Yes, I was, but that has nothing to do with now. I just want your serious opinion. What what do you care about my opinion? If you're a real painter, you'll paint because you can't live without painting. You'll paint till you die, okay? I have to work to earn a living. So I don't have time to fool around just for vanity. If I'm not good enough, I have to do something else to help my parents. Leave the best one here. Go home and paint another one. If this one's any good, I'll come and look at that one on my day off. Okay, and you've also picked out another movie, um, Orlando, which is the film adaptation of Virginia Woolf's novel. Yes, well, Orlando, beautiful film with uh, Tilda Swinton playing the role of Orlando, which is a gender-bending role because Orlando starts off um, in the time of, in Elizabethan times um, and wends his uh, wends his way through the world, having been told by Queen Elizabeth something like, you know, never grow old, never fade, never wither, never grow old, something of that kind. So he spans several centuries. Um, and in the course of those centuries, he changes gender. He wakes up one day, I think he's had enough of masculinity and being a man, and he wakes up as, 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 as a woman and, in fact, goes on to have um, a child. I can't remember if he's a son or a daughter. And, and the film really traces the, the, the adventures, if you like, uh, but also, of course, the 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 musings and the reflections and that whole change that takes place within Orlando in that shift from masculinity to to femininity and it was an absolute eye opener for me that film I saw it back in must have been quite early nineteen nineties and I had just come out as lesbian in I think it was nineteen eighty nine or ninety and I you know. I suppose I was all agog. I was really interested to know how people were thinking about sexuality. There were very few films that you could see that explored uh, gender and sexuality at that time. And Orlando was an absolute standout made by great, great, great UK filmmaker Sally Potter. And a, a really, a really extraordinary, beautiful, very touching and very poetic uh, film. And it makes you think about queerness and how you really shouldn't ever take sexuality for granted. I think we have a clip from it. I don't quite understand. I confess. 
Orlando, to me, you were and always will be, whether male or female, the pink, the pearl, and the perfection of your sex. I'm offering you my hand. Oh, Archduke, that's a very kind of you, yes. I can't accept. But I... I am England, and you are mine. I see. On what grounds? That I adore you. And this means that I belong to you? Refusing me? I am. I'm sorry. But Rolando, with your history, quite frankly, who else would have you? Do you realize what you're turning down? With your ambiguous sexuality, which I am prepared to tolerate. This is your last chance of respectability. Can't breathe. You will die a spinster, dispossessed and alone. Albert Smith, you have a big happy smile in your face <laughs> listening to that. <laughs> it's that chill in her tone when she says, oh yes, and why? <laughs> but you just see that she absolutely has the upper hand. Lovely. Moving from movies, play, theatre show, musical, what would you nominate? Yeah, I love the theatre and I think I was thinking about it very, 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 very difficult, but I plumped in, in the end for, for Marina, Marina Carr because she is really one of, if not our greatest uh, living playwrights. She's been nominated many times in this spot. I'm, I'm sure she has, and but well, rightly so, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I, but I was thinking back to Portia Cochrane, which I saw back in the 90s. And I was thinking about it particularly because there was um, a revival, if you like, or it was, was redone um, just, uh, just this year. And I was all set to go and see it. But then I broke my foot and I couldn't go and I missed it. And I would have loved that with Denise Goff. But I mean, it's a, a re- really very, I saw it in the Gary Hines production. So it was mid, mid, mid 1990s of a very haunting play and it's also very very poetic it's um it, it's quite it's a difficult play it makes you actually think about destiny it makes you think about fate it makes you think about loss it makes you think about all that part of us which is horrible and I think at one stage Portia actually says something there are two parts of her and I, I that really struck me, you know, that the way we present to the world is one thing, but what we really want to do to people and with people and with the world is often quite another. So there's this, there's this twinness in Portia because in fact she is deeply connected with her dead, her dead brother twin and she herself dies she dies i mean during during the play in fact she dies in the end of the first act which is quite remarkable risk for a dramatist to take and to have to have Portia coming back as a young woman, she's only 30, coming back, reflecting on her past as a ghost. You know, this is a very, very daring, daring play. And I think it's, I'd love to have seen the recent production because I'm pretty sure it's absolutely more than stood the test of time. Let's get to books, because as I mentioned at the outset, you had been an editor in Attic Press. Uh, and again, I think this is probably as hard for you as picking out ah, favourites. 
impossible to pick a favorite author, favorite book. You have no, to pick something. First. I know you have to pick something, but I think you know when I when I thought about it, um, I decided that really the only thing I can really say in a way about book, my favorite books is usually the last really good book I've read is however briefly my favorite <laughs> and uh, um the 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 book i've just finished reading just 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 last week actually and i read it in a couple of days was the very brilliant trespasses by louise kennedy who had previously published some absolutely fantastic um uh, the the end of the world as a cul-de-sac um short stories this is a wonderful wonderful novel about the north of ireland about set during the Troubles about a young Catholic woman called Kushla who falls in love with um, a barrister who is a Protestant but who is not uh, who is not your typical unionist. And fundamentally fundamentally it's a love story and you know you take it up and you know you know it's you know what's going to happen and I'm not going to do a spoiler for anybody but you know that this is a really, really, really painful, difficult, heartbreaking kind of situation. And she just does, she writes so beautifully about about difficulty, about conflict, about suffering, about what happens to kids, what happens to families, about the eccentricities of our mothers and the strangeness and alcoholic fogs of our fathers and I don't know what not. Um, she is a fair, I think she is a really brilliant writer. I loved the short stories and I'm not a great short story person, but I loved them. And I just want everybody to go and read Trespasses by Louise Kennedy, available in all good bookshops. But you did mention others. You put a list together for us. Emily Dickinson, <laughs> the poet Paul Amian, yes. Simone de Beauvoir. Well, I think, you know, I, 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 can't, I can't imagine living without poetry. And um, it was the great uh, black American writer, warrior, lesbian, feminist, whatever, Audre Lorde, who said, who wrote this wonderful essay, which I read when I was quite young and new to feminism. And the name, the title of the essay was Poetry is Not a Luxury. And I loved poetry. And I realised that you could actually be, and that you, you needed to be a poetry reader, if you possibly could be, as well as being an activist, because that, that helps you, that gives you, that gives you something, some great energy, and it opens up your mind and it opens up the world. So Emily Dixon, Dickinson, I, I wouldn't exactly say I have Emily Dickinson in my pocket because the collected Emily Dickinson is absolutely enormous, but I do love her. And, oh, Paula Meehan is just such a, a wonderful poet. You know, I, I'd really need a few hours to talk about these people, Matt. But what I would say is that reading for me has been, it has been the companion of my life, more than music, actually. And um, kind of sometimes I feel a bit sorry about that, but not actually, because reading opened up the world to me when I was a young, a young girl growing up in very correct, proper, Catholic, middle-class white Dublin and it just opened up different worlds and made me see that I didn't have to be what I was being raised to be or educated to be or what I was told to be that there were other possibilities in life and that it was almost a responsibility nearly to explore them and it was it really was reading that opened that up to me and I feel huge 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 gratitude to my teachers in school Many of them were nuns who opened up that world of reading for me and encouraged me.
television is not a big part of you. I know we were talking <laughs> earlier about you watching Netflix during lockdown <laughs> and watching all those Scandi things. But when we asked you for television of your youth, you had nothing for us. <laughs> no, I don't really. Um, I do watch television. I watch television like everybody watches television, but it's not... Um, it's a it's a relaxation moment. It's a chill moment. I do lo- I love current affairs, so you know I tend to watch all the kind of news programs, and I'm attached to BBC World News and very cross that I'm not getting CNN on my service provider. Please note at the moment, you know I really <laughs> like um, I love current affairs and documentaries, and um, I do love all those scanty things that just don't, they're not making them fast enough for me. I've consumed them all and I need more. Okay, what about a favourite visual artist? Uh, Many, 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 but I thought particularly of Paula Rigo because she died recently. She died just last month and she was a Portuguese-British artist who I happened to see an exhibition of hers in um, the Tate last year, but I've been an admirer of Paula Rigo for a long time. She paints, she has this whole series of paintings about basically about incredibly bold, really fierce little girls and... They, they're the kind of thing I give to my granddaughter. They're Im- immensely powerful, immensely fierce, very, very savage, incredibly bold, very indignant, ferociously out there in the world. And she's done, oh, she's done s- such wonderful, wonderful work. But for those bold, fierce, <laughs> dreadful little girls, I really commend her. And they remind me, of course, of the little girls uh, that Alice Marr paints, our own, our very own, very wonderful Alice Marr and the little figures that Barbara Milani made. And, um, you know, I, I don't know, Paula Rico, she was absolutely herself. And let me say that there is a wonderful documentary about Paula Rico, which um, was made by, I think, her son. And you get it on Netflix. It's just called Paula Rico. I strongly recommend it for an artist's life. She had an amazing, an amazing life. She was also incredibly beautiful and very sexy. And she was just, she was just the bee's knees in the cat's pyjamas and a fabulous artist. And may she rest in her power. <laughs> One last thing I want to ask you about. We ask our guests to nominate a cultural buried treasure. Anything you would recommend to anyone that's perhaps you think been overlooked? Well, I know that there are concerts held there, pop concerts and things. But I always think Ivy Gardens is a bit overlooked. And of course, I wasted a great deal of my youth as a student in UCD in Ivy Gardens and in the little kind of cafe, which is really a canteen that opened out onto the gardens and which is now the wonderful Museum of of, uh, Literature Ireland, Molly. And I strongly, strongly recommend it. Beautiful, beautiful museum exquisite gardens, lovely cafe, none of your canteen anymore for very posh Dublin, of course. And just a really beautiful place to spend an hour or two with a friend or just on your own, just wander in. Um, And the buildings, you know, that side of Stephen's Green, it's just a lovely place to be. And somehow it captures something very precious about Dublin. And I would have to say that I don't think Dublin is overlooked, but it's definitely my favourite city in the world. I love Dublin. Alvis Smith, thank you so much for joining us on the Culture Club here today on The Last Word of Today FM. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today FM.